Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Okay, last week we started in the book of Acts. We saw the beginning of the church regrouping and awaiting God's instructions. Today we're going to see uh, Acts chapter 2 and the overwhelming presence of the Holy Spirit coming on the disciples to empower them to do God's will. Let's read verse 1 through 13. It says, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and with one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. Pentecost, starting with verse 1. Pentecost. In the Greek, the word is pentecostes, which means 50. 50 what? Well, it meant 50 days from the Sabbath after the Passover was the Pentecost. And you can read that in Leviticus 23. You can refer to that. Why wasn't, you know, it would, the Pentecost really comes from the Hebrew Shavuot. But over the years, the Jewish people adopted, they were Hellenized. They adopted a lot of the Greek words, like the word synagogue. Even today, synagogue is a Greek word. It comes from the Greek. Now, what is the significance of Pentecost? Well, let's start with the Passover, which most of us are familiar with, with that. The killing of the innocent lamb, the flawless lamb to atone for the sins of the people. How did Jesus fulfill that? Well, even John the Baptist said when Jesus was coming, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus was the fulfillment of that perfect, in terms of no sin, spotless, innocent Lamb who died for the sins of the people. Okay, then after the Passover comes the first fruits. The first fruits is the first day of the week, Sunday, after the Passover. And the first fruits was a thanks to God for the harvest. So what they would do is they would offer God the first fruits of that harvest. Okay, how is that fulfilled in Jesus? You see how all these feasts are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus also rose from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday after the Passover, fulfilling the first fruits of the resurrected. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Read uh, four verses. This is Paul speaking, and listen to his language. He likens the resurrection uh, to the first fruit festival. Verse 20, Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or who have died. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, 
afterward those who are Christ at his coming, meaning reference to the rapture and the, the mass resurrection in the rapture. So Christ was the first fruits of the dead, uh, the, the resurrection. Then we come back to Pentecost or Shavuot, which is another first fruits. They had different um, they had different harvests. I believe it was the barley harvest came first, and then the wheat harvest. So the first fruits, the, the Pentecost is another type of first fruits, and the Jews associated this feast Pentecost with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. We're going to see how that's significant. Now, how does Christ fulfill Pentecost? Okay, by the giving of the Holy Spirit. Christ spoke about the giving of the Holy Spirit, the age of grace. The fulfillment of the law is now written on the hearts of the people. I'm going to turn to the Old Testament again, or back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember it no more. So even in the Old Testament, the prophet spoke about a new covenant that was coming, one where it would be just different, not like the law on the tablets and they would have to put it up and say, Hey, you can't do that. Look, look, it says right there in the law, don't do that. There's going to be a time, said Jeremiah, when the law would be written on the hearts and the minds of the people. No more would you have to tell your neighbor, don't do that, it's wrong. It would just be, they would just know it. And that would be the fulfillment of that is the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit works within us where we don't need another person or we don't need to see something. The Holy Spirit inside of us tells us that's wrong. And as Christians, we get convicted because it's on our hearts and our minds. Today is also Pentecost. Okay, today, Sunday, is Pentecost. Now, I didn't time it that way, to, I promise, to do the service on the day of Pentecost. It just happened like that. And this week, again, I, I, as I prayed, you heard me say that Jews for Jesus is going into the Hasidic community, sort of like what was happening here, although they're not going to probably receive that well, and preach Jesus Christ through the Old Testament, through the Hasidic community. So I just ask that you would pray for them uh, in this endeavor that they're going on. Now, let me just finish up with the feast, and then we'll move on. The next step on the prophetic calendar is Jesus' return. Now, this is just speculation. It's just something to have fun with. But is it a possibility that Jesus could return on the Feast of Trumpets or the New Year, Rosh Hashanah? For you Bible students, 1 Thessalonians 4, before the Lord calls us home, there's a trumpet blast. It's a stretch, and I'm not setting dates here, but it's interesting. You know, Jesus did a lot of incredible things on these feasts. Or the significance of the New Year. Or a new era in eternity, a new year, a new eternity, right? But we should be thankful for two things. The first thing is the first fruits, the resurrection. The significance is we have eternal life. First John 5, 11 through 13 says, And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, 
And this eternal life is in his son. He who has the son has eternal life. He who does not have the son does not have eternal life. John says, and I write these things to you, children, little children, that you may know. You may know who the son of God is and that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the son of God. And Pentecost, in addition to the resurrection, which, you know, when we die, we can look, we could be look, looking forward to being in the presence of God. We have the seal of God while we're waiting for eternal life. Second Corinthians 1, 22 says that we've been sealed. God has sealed us. The Holy Spirit, the seal of the Holy Spirit is on us. So literally, if you think about it, when we're believers, when we believe in the sacrifice that Jesus made, you've heard the expression, to have the best of both worlds. We have the best of both worlds. Not only when we die, we immediately go to be in the presence of the Lord, but while we're alive, we have the presence of the Lord dwelling in us. The Holy Spirit seals us. So we, I don't think we realize how good we have it. But the interesting thing, too, is both, both first fruits and Pentecost both happened on the first day of the week, on Sunday, signifying new beginnings. So they were with one accord and in one place, and then it happened. Imagine if we could get the Western church to be with one accord and one place spiritually. I usually pick on the American church, but I tell you what, the church in Europe is no better. As a matter of fact, it's worse. Um, when I read this, when I read this, I actually had uh, questions that I had answered immediately. I believe so. I wondered why, you know, I'm so in touch with the missionaries in India, in, in Middle America, in, um, you know, Africa and Asia. And the stuff that they tell me is mind-blowing. And I hear confirmation from different missionaries. I mean, almost like Pentecost. Every day in India, there's thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. People are being healed by, uh, from incredible diseases and, and, and um, you know, afflictions. And it's just happening so much in the mission field. And I wonder, I don't see it that much here. It is, you know, God does work here, but it's just not, I don't think it's as prevalent. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Number one, and it's just speculation, the wholesale departure from the word of God. We've gotten so caught up in the Western church in what feels good. Does it feel good? Let's pick out the portion of scriptures where it is love and joy and happiness. Let's not talk about afflictions. Let's not talk about if, if Jesus says, if, if, you follow, if you follow me, they're going to persecute you because they persecuted me. It's just a selective, even if some churches even use the word of God, it's just so selective. Or maybe one verse is put up on the PowerPoint and a whole message is, is centered around one verse. You, you hardly get the, the whole counsel of God anymore. Worldliness. There's so much worldliness in the body of Christ. And we got it good. We're here in the air conditioning. Uh, there's some countries where they have to actually walk a half day through the, the jungles and the hot and the snakes and everything to get to a church service. And they spend their day there and then they have to come back home again. So there's a lot of worldliness, a lot of comforts and a lot of reliance on our own ingenuity over God's protection. Fill in the blanks. Being well watered and well fed well, think about it. If you're well-watered and you're well-fed, you're not hungry. And you're not hungry for the Word of God. So I would just pray for us as a church, and not just here, but everywhere, to be in one place and one accord, or revival. But there's a few things going on here. One is the sound. There's a sound of a rushing, mighty wind. And it says, coming from heaven. So there's this incredible noise. You know, you, I don't, you, can, you can't really see the wind, but you see its effects, Jesus says. 
So they, 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 they hear this incredible sound, and somehow, when they're oriented, they, they find that it's coming from heaven to where they are. That's pretty amazing. I want to read John 3, uh, four verses. John 3, 5 through 8. Let's see what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit and how he likens it to the wind. John 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus likens the Holy Spirit, likens the conversion experience to uh, there's an effect on you. Can you say exactly when you were born again? I can't say to the second when the Holy Spirit entered me. I don't, uh, even, even if I could go back that many years, I don't know that I could pinpoint it. But the effects on me are different. I was one of those people that sat all the way in the back years ago and the pastor would preach and I would, he would talk about sharing your faith and I would say in my mind, you're a pastor, I'm a cop. You get paid to tell people about Jesus. I get paid to lock people up. So, you know, obviously I'm here. The Lord has totally changed me. The effects of the Holy Spirit have changed me and many of you also. The appearances, so there's a sound and there's an appearance. The appearances of tongues of fire. I'm going to read one verse in Luke 3.16. 3.16. John the Baptist, he answered, saying to them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, referring to Jesus, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Some people believe that Uh, two things about that statement. The Holy Spirit, obviously. Jesus said he would send the Holy Spirit. That's not open to discussion. The part about fire. Some people believe that um, one of the things that he meant or what he meant was that uh, you either believe in Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit, and if you reject him, you get fire, which is eternal damnation, but it's your choice. The other good understanding of that scripture is that you get the Holy Spirit and fire referring forward to the baptism here where the tongues of fire were coming down and hovering over the the people, his followers. So, again, there's this this a picture. It says tongues of fire, and and it hovered over each one of them. But what's interesting is that when when God gave Moses the law and Moses gave the law to the people, there was also fire. The mountain was burned uh, in, in fire. So there's a lot of similarities to... The Pentecost and the traditions and the, what the Old, or the Old Testament said about Pentecost and how Jesus fulfilled in the Pentecost. And the last thing is you have the sound, you have the appearance, and all the church came together as one and were commissioned as one body, as the body of Christ. Now this is probably a good time to give more detail about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And there's three main manifestations in how the Holy Spirit because, again, I've said before, a lot of people don't understand the Holy Spirit. He's definitely the most misunderstood out of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I believe, is the biggest amount of misunderstanding of who he actually is and what he does. So there's three things that I want to cover. Luke 3.16, uh, we talked about John the Baptist uses the word, he will baptize, baptise. 
Now, that word says he will baptize, he will immerse you in, in, in the Holy Spirit. And he was referring to this day. In Acts 1, Jesus also reiterates that, uh, that thought and says that the Holy Spirit would do this by coming upon the, his followers. So he gives a little bit more detail as it gets closer to Pentecost. Jesus says, he will come upon you, or in the Greek, the preposition is epi. All right? Think of epi upon. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. As a result, there's a commission to do something. We see later in chapter 2 a fearlessness by Peter since his denial of Jesus. This is a different Peter. Like, where did this guy go? You know, he walked somewhere in a phone booth and he took the Clark Kent thing off and he became Superman. What you see is Peter is a changed man. And it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a guy who... You know, he draws his sword, he tries to protect the Lord. Jesus has put the sword away, and he's thinking, well, how am I going to fight? You know, these guys have clubs and stuff, and now Jesus is telling me to put my sword away. Uh, I know what I'll do. I'll run away. <laughs> I'll flee. He follows the Lord at a distance. When asked, hey, don't you know that Jesus guy over there? Well, I don't know the man. Three times. Whip, weeps bitterly. He leaves. It gets worse from there. The women come to the disciples and says, the tomb is empty. The Lord is resurrected. Ah, those are just idle tales. I mean, Peter is not having a good track record here. Now, on the day of Pentecost, he's bold. We're going to see he stands up before thousands of people, and he proclaims Jesus Christ. Now, he knows he's going to get in trouble. He knows that, but he's bold and fearless. This man is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how we get changed, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that happens is a sealing. The Holy Spirit seals us, and this happens upon conversion. If you're taking notes, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22, and Ephesians 1, verse 13. The Greek word is sphragasamenos, which is not important. You don't have to write it down. Um, but what it means is the Holy Spirit has sealed us. What I want to focus on is another vari variation of that Greek word. And that word is sphragas, which means seal. This is the noun variation of that verb. And I want to focus on the seal. Because in Greek language, this word sphragis or seal was associated with the sealing of a document by an official's signet ring for, the, for ID or authentication. And many of you have heard this. The officials would have these rings that they would probably even go to bed with, and it would have a carved, engraved seal that was unique to their ruling. And what would happen is if there was a, a document that had to go somewhere and it wasn't supposed to be touched under penalty of death, they would melt wax on the document as it was closed and they would take their signet ring while the wax was soft and put it in there, make the impression, and pull it out. So wherever that letter had to go, people knew, don't mess with that document. It has the seal of this particular Roman official. So this is the type of seal that they're talking about. Well, what's amazing here is that God is saying to us, I own you. You're mine. God says you're authentic. You have value because I've placed that value on you. And you know what? A lot of people don't understand that. And it, it, I don't get mad, so don't, don't feel bad about saying it to me. But I get sad when somebody who's a believer comes up to me and they talk to me like they have no self-worth. People may look down on themselves because of a, a failed marriage or an addiction problem or... Um, a single parent home, or whatever it is, and they don't feel really powerful. But God says, you have authority because you have authentication 
You are identified with me. You are mine because I've put my seal on you. And I think the more that we realize that and come to that conclusion, the better off we'll be. You all have a sphragis, whether you can spell it or say it or not. You've all got the sphragis on you, okay? So take heart on that. The third thing is the Holy Spirit can come alongside of us and also those that he is convicting of sin to bring them to salvation. Scripture reference, John 14, 16, John 16, 8. The Greek preposition is para, which means with, as in the word parakletos. And that's familiar because uh, parakletos is understood to be the Holy Spirit. And what it means is para means with and kletos to be called, and literally the Holy Spirit is called alongside of us. He's with us. Uh, and it's been translated helper or comforter in the, uh, in the New Testament. So what you have is these main relationships, the epi, the coming upon, the sphragis, the seal or the ownership, the para, the coming alongside. And in John 14:17, he says in two instances, he speaks about the para of the Holy Spirit and the en or the in. So Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be with you and the Holy Spirit will be in you. So there's two relationships going on at the same time. Now we must still keep in mind the Holy Spirit's purpose. John 16, there's a lot in John. John 16, 13 through 15. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, meaning Jesus. And he will take what I say and declare it to you. Now you might say, well, why didn't Jesus just do that? Jesus said to his disciples, it was one portion of scripture where he says, there's many things that I still have to tell you, but you can't bear it right now. And the Holy Spirit, when he came, he helped them to get a, you know, to, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were active in, in what they were doing, the Holy Spirit would reveal things to them, right? The Holy Spirit teaches, the Bible says. Also, John 15, 26 through 27, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will testify of me. And who also cause us as believers to bear witness of Jesus, okay? And we spoke of that last Sunday. Now, this is important because this is where we get into abuses. For some reason, again, with misunderstanding and misinformation about the Holy Spirit come abuses of understanding of the Holy Spirit or even sometimes tongues in particular. The Bible says to test all things against Scripture, and that's what we're going to do. The gifts of the Spirit, if you're taking notes, are listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Um, noticeably absent from the gifts of the Spirit, being pastors, apostles, um, tongues, uh, healings, miracles, administration, all that other kind of stuff. Noticeably absent is barking in the Spirit and laughing in the Spirit. That's <laughs> not there. You could search all you want, you're not going to find it. And even worse, um, even worse things that are not listed in there that people do and blame it on the poor Holy Spirit. They do bizarre things and they say, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit's having me do that. No, he's not. And it often causes confusion at the very least. Paul says regarding the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, one of the things he says, if the whole church, speeches, if the whole church speaks in tongues and an unbeliever or somebody uninformed comes in and hears it, will they not say that you're insane? Now, these are unintelligible tongues. And what he's saying is that will scare away unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not the author of confusion, but he's the author of peace. 
Now, you may say, well, didn't that kind of happen in Acts 2? And the answer is no. In Acts 2, everyone understood what was said. If you follow all these people groups, they all got it. Whatever was being said by the, by the Lord's followers, these bystanders, they picked it up. They understood exactly, and they were amazed that they heard it all in their own language. So there, there was nothing lost in the translation. And Paul, speaking in 1 Corinthians, uses the backdrop, again, of speaking in unintelligible words. This is a tough subject. That's why I'm hitting you with a lot of scripture, because it really takes a long time to digest everything that's going on here. And I would suggest, on your own, reading 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14 on your own, because they all really go together. Now, the caveat to all this is, if you're speaking in tongues that are unintelligible in front of others, it necessitates an interpreter. Paul speaks about that numerous times in 1 Corinthians 14. However, if it's just you and the Lord alone in your prayer time, you, you know, you can speak in tongues. And I'll give you the scripture reference, reference in a minute. And I'm not saying, like I'm telling you, you can speak in tongues or you can't. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. I have no authority. I'm just taking it from this book right here. So don't get mad at me, just mad at the book, because that's what it says here. <laughs> so I know a pastor friend, I had asked him, he's been in ministry, I don't know, close to 20 years, and I said, have you ever spoken tongues? And he said, you know, Joe, maybe twice. And one time I remembered vividly, he says, you know, he was by himself, he was in the shower, he's taking a shower, he's praying, it's a good thing to do while you're in the shower. And uh, all of a sudden he started speaking in tongues, and it was unintelligible words, it was between, it just took over. It's not that he practiced it or anybody told him what to say. It's just him and the Lord, and he started speaking in tongues. Now, 1 Corinthians 14, 14 addresses that. It says, if I pray in the tongue, my spirit prays, and my understanding is unfruitful. Even you don't understand what you're saying. You know, it's just between your spirit and the Lord. And Romans 8, 26 also covers that, especially if we, we're, we don't know what to pray, and we're just, you know, the wind is out of our sails, and we're just groaning before the Lord, the Spirit takes over. Uh, it, it, it's right there in Romans 8.26. Okay, so again, there's a lot of scripture today. So okay, now I'm going to go back to verse 5 and read that block again and talk about what was actually happening here. Verse 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone had heard them speak in his own language. You may say, well, they were confused. They weren't confused about the words. They were confused in how I'm Greek, he's Russian, he's whatever, and we're all hearing what they're saying in, in Aramaic coming into our language. That's the confusion, but not the message. Understand that. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear in our own language in which we were born? And the word language in the Greek is dialecto, where we get the word dialect. So any indigenous unique, um, very little used language by some group in a remote area of the globe, God can, can kind of split that so they can understand it. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. What I see here is the reversing of the Babel confusion. Remember, and there's a lot of plays on words here, 
Remember those of you who are Bible students back in Genesis 10 and 11, the Tower of Babel? And because of what happened, actually our English word Babel means confusion. He's just babbling. I don't understand that. Okay? What you have here is they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit gives them utterances. What you see is this is the undoing of what happened at Babel. Uh, later called Babylon, and again, literally means confusion. There was a guy named Nimrod who initially built Babylon and Assyria, which is now, incidentally, modern-day Iraq. But why is it... you ever hear somebody say that person's a Nimrod? Usually in our slang, it means a dummy. Hey, what a, you're a Nimrod. I don't understand where that comes from, because this guy wasn't a dummy. He was a pretty smart guy, but a worldly guy, but smart. But Babylon is mentioned from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Babylon is mentioned a lot in the scripture. Babylon is known as the antithesis of everything pertaining to God and holiness. In Genesis, in the Genesis account in 10 and 11, everybody had one language. All mankind spoke the same language. Makes sense. All came from the same parents, right? But they were, um, man's plan was this, to build a tower to the heavens and make a name for humanity, the worship of man. Look up humanism in the dictionary. This is really an early form of humanism. So God confused man's language and scattered them because of their uniting to worship mankind, to worship themselves. God said, we can't have this. So he scattered them. He confused their language. They went different ways, and they would group together those people who could understand each other in the different languages now that were made. But what happens here is... um, in Acts, God breaks this Babel curse that ends up, what ends up happening is mankind now gets pitted against himself. First, they, they come together to build this tower, you know, to all unify. God scatters their language. Now they, they splinter up. And what happens over time is countries develop, lands develop. You know, we all speak whatever language and you speak that. And we're here and you're there. And they ended up getting pitted against each other really as a result of this. But in Acts, God unites mankind, notwithstanding his obvious differences in language, culture, color, etc. Now, why did God do this? Why did, after all these years, God decide, now I'm going to unite them again under this, this Holy Spirit thing where everybody heard in their own language? Because this time man is uniting, he's uniting not to worship himself, but to worship and glorify God and to be obedient to his mandates. All the organizations in the world today, if you think about it, have either become, give it time, have either become corrupt or dissipated if God is not at the center of their organization. It's just, it's kind of babble still around in a sense. And, you know, there may be some, you know, even charities that may be corrupted that you don't know about and we'll find out in the end because of God's not in the center of it. So even churches, some churches have have come to nothing because they've evolved into a a social club where God is not in the center of it, become corrupted or dissipated. Humans never seem to learn that basic lesson. If we're going to unite together, the only reason that we should be here together today is to, to be obedient to God, to learn more about him, and to continue what he has mandated us to do, right? Otherwise, it just becomes a social club. In verse 5, What you have is, it says, they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, the Jews were, in the diaspora, they were were split up, okay, Uh, over the years. They were persecuted, and they went to to Babylon. They went to these different countries. They They went all over the place, okay? However, 
According to the Old Testament, there were certain feasts where they would have to come together, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and to observe these feasts. So these devout Jews would come and make these long treks from these other areas and come into Jerusalem. Passover, or, um, you know, they've been there for at least 50 days or more because of the Passover, the, the first fruits, and now Pentecost. So these Jews who were at, at the, the crucifixion at Passover are still in the city. So they're all coming together. Verse 11, something interesting happens here. And again, what it, it, understand this for what it is. What it's similar to is, as I'm, I'm speaking in English, okay? And if you only speak Arabic and you only speak Greek and you only speak Hebrew, speaking in English, but somewhere between my lips and your ears, you hear it in your language, you hear it in yours, and you hear it in yours, and I still hear English coming out of my mouth. That's pretty amazing stuff. How did it happen? If you ask me exactly how it happened, I don't know. Um, you know, God knows. He, maybe he has some really cool sound equipment and synthesizers. Stuff that Josh back there would love to get his hands on. <laughs> Obviously, it was supernatural. It just was a supernatural thing. In verse 13, the last thing that's on here is that uh, others mocking said they are full of new wine. There's a theory, and you know, uh, I'm not going to be doctrinal on this, but a lot, you'll hear people say from time to time that the alcohol or the wine back then had no alcohol in it. I don't really buy that, um, and you couldn't get drunk on the wine back then. Well, right here is obviously a possibility. Peter retorts and says it's only 9 a.m. You know, you're not going to be drunk at 9 a.m., but it was possible to, to imbibe and to get drunk on that wine. And the Bible is also replete with warnings not to be drunk with wine. So if you couldn't get drunk with wine, why would the Bible say don't get drunk with wine? So I, I just don't buy that. <laughs> and the Greek word for new wine is actually glucose. Does that sound familiar? We get glucose from that, which is a crystalline monosaccharide, or in English it's just a simple sugar that most uh, carbohydrates are based upon. So it was sweet, but if you could ferment it enough, you can get alcohol, you could get drunk on it. The second thing is mockers. These people were mocking. I mean, this was a, a, a work of the Holy Spirit. It affected 3,000 people that day, that day got saved. And you still had your mockers. You still had your naysayers. Satan is still going to use his people, or he's still going to influence people to try to undo everything that God does. That's just what he does. That's Satan's full-time job. You all got jobs. Satan's job is to undo everything that God does and pull as many people away from the kingdom of heaven as possible. So... You can do everything right and still get the naysayers. It's going to happen. Some people will never get it because they don't want to get it. Even when, uh, when early in Jesus' ministries, when the, the sky opened up and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit descended on him and God said, uh, he said, this is my son who I am well pleased. There were people who heard the voice of God, certainly trembled. And there were people who said, ah, it sounds like thunder. You know what I'm saying? There's just always going to be people who... Even when the voice of God comes out of the heavens, they're still going to say, ah, it sounds like thunder. <laughs> What's that noise? And it's just the way it's going to be. So, unfortunately, people, have the, um, people get discouraged by this kind of stuff, but you can't be distracted on the mockers. You've just got to go full steam ahead in what God is showing you. Now, let's just take, let's break this down. Let's take any misconceptions out of Pentecost and put it up against the Scripture. Let's follow the order. So what we covered so far was, Jesus, both John and Jesus, pointed to the baptism of the Spirit, or the epi, the coming upon his followers. In Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of this. It actually happens. 
His followers spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. See, God controls the gifts of the Spirit, not us. Uh, you know, you can't practice gifts. You can't practice miracles. You can't practice tongues. You can't practice a, a true gift of God. It escapes me. Was it, was it Simon in the New Testament where Peter had, he healed somebody and he said, how much can I give you for that gift? Peter turned around and we'll get to that. I mean, he was livid. He was like, your money perish with you. You better pray to God for forgiveness. You can't buy the gifts of God with money. Whenever money is combined with, with um, ecclesiastical office or some type of gift or some type of working of God, there's a problem there. Okay, you can't, God doesn't need your money. It's paper to him. It's useless to him. So you can't practice the gifts of the Spirit. God gives you the Spirit. You can pray for those gifts. You can ask for those gifts to be honed, but it has to be God working through you. You have no control over it. The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, etc., heard them speaking in their own language. Again, they didn't hear Babel. They heard their own language. The message was loud and clear. And what they... What, they, what did they hear in their own language? It was the wonderful works of God. It was, it was time of praise. Now, we're going to see, starting in verse 14, where Peter stands up and starts to explain what's going on. But up until this point, they're declaring, you know, they hear it, they're looking up, whatever, and it comes in, and there's the tongues of fire. Hey, John, you got a tongue of fire over. Hey, you got one over your head too, Peter. And they're just excited, they're like, praise God. This is what Jesus was talking about. They're the, oh, God is great. The wonderful works. He is so, they're probably quoting Psalms, and that's what they hear in their own language. They're hearing the praises to God. And what were they commissioned to do? To go boldly and further God's ministry. And we see that starting in verse 14, and we see 3,000 people get saved that day. Imagine that. 3,000, that's a lot of people. That's, that's just a, a staggering figure. And one day, because of this, 3,000 people get saved. So what should we take from this? Well, we all seek to have worth and purpose, just like we all seek to uh, make ourselves happy. You know, it's just as we grow up, we say, well, what's going to make me happy? Maybe a new car. Uh, that's not working. Maybe a new house. Uh, that's not working. Maybe a new relationship. After a while, that doesn't work so, because you're looking in the wrong places. God has designed us to seek him. He's designed something in us, an emptiness or a vacuum that can only be filled by him. By the same token, we all seek to have worth and purpose. And really, these two are tied together. People ask over time, well, what am I here for? What purpose do I serve? People ask that question. Many seek it in their family lives or their careers. That's why the losing of a job or a divorce or the loss of a loved one can be devastating because you seek worth, a lot of people, and you're careers, and your family life. But we will clearly see in Acts that we are the most effective and most purposeful in life when we serve God. The second thing we can take from this is, probably the most exciting thing we can learn about the Holy Spirit, is that a part of God resides in those of us who believe, who have accepted God's sacrifice through his Son on the cross. We believe, and we are saved, and 1 John 4, 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Speaking about the Holy Spirit, I think we've made that clear versus Satan's influence. I think we've made that clear in the past that he controls this world for a time. He who is in you, part of God, is greater than he who is in the world. And we use that scripture to say that Christians can't be demon-possessed, incidentally. How could if Satan in there and the Holy Spirit and they're fighting it out, who's going to win? The Holy Spirit's always going to win. So what, we don't believe that Christians can be possessed based on that. 
But you can read all the self-help books you want and the self-esteem boosters or whatever you're, you're looking for. But the most uplifting message you could ever receive is that this, get this, is that the living God, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. The Bible says that. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of all your loved ones who have died and gone on before you who are in the Lord. He's the God of them too. He's the God of a lot of people who are alive and with him. The living God of the universe wants to make his home inside of you. I mean, Deepak Chopra has nothing on this, man. This is good stuff. The living God, the living, most powerful God wants to make his home inside of you. And I just pray today that everybody understands that and that everybody, if you haven't, will take advantage of that. Let's pray. The God of all 